I have my candle lit. I've got water here. I'm ready to go. Welcome to the Eternia Review. My name is Ben. And I'm Truman. Me and Truman are going through and doing a book report, as it were, on all of the episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And this week, we get to see He-Man get one step closer to seizing the means of production. In the She-Demon of Phantos, Episode 9. What were your initial thoughts on uh, this episode? It was definitely slave labor going on in that. And I don't know, we'll have to get into whether or not it was actually slave labor or Skeletor enforcing slave labor. Fun little preview for the episode ahead. (laughs) It includes speculative slavery or speculation on slavery. This episode features a return to opening in space, pan across the world, We cut to a space station that originally I thought it was under construction, but I think it just has a lot of towers and what do you call that when you're like working on the side of a tall building and it's the stuff that you, the like platforms that you build up. Oh, the scaffolding? Scaffolding, thank you. Around the towers, we pan over to a castle that seems to be ensconced in rock. Yeah, it's like jutting out of the rock. And apparently it's an entire kingdom. But I don't know about that even. We don't see a lot of free citizens. We do see some questionably free citizens in the kingdom, which, yeah, we'll get to later. Adam and Man-at-Arms, in the meantime, are sparring. Man-at-Arms is bashing at Adam, who's holding a shield with a funny-looking sword gun. And he, like he Does he whack Adam with the sword, and then he shoots him with a zappy gun, and the shield blocks all of it? Apparently, Queen Almora has outdone herself because this fultanium is the best substance in the world or the world and the outer planets, I guess, for creating weapons. They're very impressed by the material. And here we find out that we are on the moon of Phantos. They can travel in space? Apparently. Do they have a spaceship? They have to have a spaceship. So later in the episode, they get back to the moon through a portal. But if they're like on a trading mission to get a bunch of building materials or weapon materials, there has to be some sort of freight that passes through somewhere. So I would think that would be on a ship of some sort. Rather than handing it piece by piece through the magic portal? I, I would think... So they're spacefaring in some sort of sense. Queen Marlena crashed on Eternia however long ago in a spaceship. Man-at-Arms has had however long to tinker with the wreckage of her spaceship. So presumably, even if they didn't have it before, perhaps Queen Marlena brought space travel to Eternia. We don't know how long this particular kingdom's been here, whatever, but there's a society on this moon that has been there for probably longer than however long Marlene has been there. I guess we don't know how long Marlene has been there. So it's, if it's been tw- at least 20 years, because that's how old Adam probably is, could they build a factory in a castle in that time? Yeah, they could. But then the portal's probably been there before. So maybe now they're just opening up the freight missions to the moon of Phantos. The feeling is kind of as Man-at-Arms thanks Almora for the Fultanium, not like a regular shipment this is you know the next month's fultanium supply it felt like the beginning of a trading relationship 
or else why would man at arms and he man be testing it by dangerously sparring in queen almora's great hall or whatever for her entertainment that is believable based on something we'll get to a little later in the episode yeah in the meantime the queen dismisses them but adam picks up on something in her terrible posture as she's slouched on her throne and the way she's speaking that something appears to be wrong and they've been hanging out forever along this bed and he just now says something or probably he just now notices i don't know if adam is exactly quick on the uptake he can't be no one can be quick on the uptake because as man at arms and he man leave is revealed to be literally waiting behind a curtain and like immediately as they leave the room, like they've just walked off frame, the curtain peels back and here's Skeletor. They standing really quietly behind there the whole time that he managed. <laughs> just like the whole time. And, and Skeletor's just like, it'll be great. It'll be great. Just wait, the curtain will peel back and I'll say you did great, Marlena. Occasionally they like peek out, pull the curtain <laughs> aside with their little finger and then someone glances their way and they duck back yeah. really hastily. <laughs> And He-Man will have no idea! So Skeletor has apparently swapped Man-at-Arms shipment with worthless metal ore. Skeletor has captured Almora's citizens in chains and orders them taken to the dungeon while Almora protests. I kind of glossed over that part a little bit. Was it her citizens or was it like just like a couple of her like servants or something? Or like her entire populace or whatever. She asks Skeletor to let her people go, her citizens go, something like that. Okay, because that does change a little bit of whether or not it's slavery or not. That adds into the notes. When Skeletor calls for the people to be drug away, he says ominously, see that they are made uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, what are you going to do? Put them in like a wooden chair with no cushion on it? They turn down the thermostat (laughs) in the dungeon, so it's just like shivering weather. It's like at 58 degrees, and they turn (laughs) up the humidity. The queen does not stand for her citizens being made mildly uncomfortable and attempts to zap Skeletor, but he reflects it back at Almora with his hands and then eventually zaps her into old age. Just into an, an old hag, just... Like, sucks the life force out of her. So previously, Almora is a lively, it's impossible to know how old anyone is, but vibrant queen, and after Skeletor's magic kind of encircles her, transforms her, she gets lines on her face, she looks a lot more weathered, and she's got the most hilarious cockeyed expression. Yeah, like one eye's real tiny, one eye's like wide open the whole time. That she just glares at everybody with. It's great. She, like, succumbs to Skeletor's will with her little Popeye out. So we cut over to Palace, where Man-at-Arms and Tila are testing out what they believe are the Fultanium weapons. Is that a weapon, or is it a windmill on a stick? It was kind of like a part nunchuck swinging, yeah, windmill. It was like one of those, like, there's three little... I guess they were blades, and it looked like one of those windmills you had when you were a kid that you, like, run in the wind and it, like, spins, but it's, like, you know, sword length. Like a pinwheel made out of glittery paper, but in this case, fultanium. Or not fultanium. Fake fultanium. The weapon did not make any sense at all, and apparently they keep breaking. And they break in this case, too. 
they don't make it like they used to. You know, that that photanium. Back when they made it on Eternia, the great Eternian made photanium. This joke is going nowhere. We can move on. So Adam speculates briefly that the queen Almora seemed a little off when they were there, but they are saved from having to do any critical thinking about what could be wrong by the appearance of a bird. Ah, yes, the falcon shows up, and Man-at-Arms and he or Adam really loudly whisper to each other, It's the falcon! We probably should go to Castle Grayskull! Which is absurd because, I don't know, does Tila not know that the falcon is the sorceress? She has to know. Man-at-Arms says, Prince Adam and I have to talk about something real quick. And then she laughs and says, Okay, father, I'll go clean up the... (laughs) Fultanium weapon mess. I think she's got to know. I feel like Tila has to know. If she doesn't, I don't know. I'd be real disappointed in her. Of course, maybe she had her mind wiped so many times because the sorceress just does that to her anyway. There is precedent. He makes up his flimsy excuse uh, and they go to Castle Grayskull where the sorceress exposits what's going on. Because people know exactly what's happening as soon as it's happening in He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. It makes sense because the sorceress has her like falcon vision or the sorceress vision, like Skeletor's got her skeleton. So she's like a walking exposition machine because she's always watching everybody too. Although it is bizarre that she knows right away. Hey, Skeletor's up there. Okay, there are a lot of locations on Eternia. Is she watching all of them at all times or does the sorceress just have her eye on Skeletor? She has to have her eye on Skeletor. He's got to be under constant surveillance because he's always causing problems. Or is it like in uh, The Dark Knight where Batman has like that super surveillance machine that can tell what's going on anywhere in the city, wherever there's crimes, no matter what, because Batman? Batman not wanting to disappoint Morgan Freeman at the end of the movie destroys his machine because he realized that realizes that it's morally repugnant to spy on everybody. But the sorceress does not give a shit. She doesn't have Morgan Freeman to disappoint. The sorceress leads a lonely life. There's no, she doesn't have a pet or a sidekick or. I mean, she has He-Man as a pet, yeah. I guess, more or less. It's pretty much her only like steady relationship. She has her own daughter that she never sees, who's raised by man-at-arms. She has no relationship with Tila. And then the only relationship she has is really with He-Man and company when there's trouble. And she's just like, hey guys, come help me with this. But in the opening credits, He-Man calls her our friends. But I don't know if that counts for much because He-Man like, saves his enemies. So maybe he thinks people that are acquaintances are friends. Do you think He-Man is the type of person who would think his coworkers are friends when they get along at work, even though they don't hang out outside of work? So maybe they aren't friends. The sorceress is extremely okay with doing nothing or... The sorceress has some off-screen hobbies, or the sorceress hobby is watching Skeletor. Just like the Skeletor's hobby is watching He-Man and cackling. And building models of Castle Grayskull. (laughs) Yeah, maybe one day we'll get a tidbit for how the sorceress spends. She's probably just, at this point, all we know is that she's just watching Skeletor all the time. Skeletor is watching like the castle attorney all the time and also building models at the same time. So he's got like a multitasking thing going on. Maybe the sorceress like knits or writes poetry or something. I could see her doing like weaving, like basket weaving, like a nest, finding pretty sticks. That's probably it. That's why she's always out on flights. The sorceress has told 
Prince Adam and Man-at-Arms that Skeletor has enslaved Almora's mind and is controlling the Fultanium supply. Prince Adam responds by immediately transforming into He-Man, and then they set off to go back to Phantos. So while Man-at-Arms is like packing up the attack track, because they don't even use the attack track, I don't know he's packing it up, but it's there so that they can set up a scene where Man-at-Arms is leaving Tila and saying, hey, you're in charge while I'm gone, which is her job. She's the captain of the guard. Like he's telling her, you're in charge of the jars while I'm gone. And then she like whines about not being able to come with. She first suggests that Adam should be left in charge if they can even find him. He's probably off smoking weed and fishing again. No one seems to care too much that Prince Adam is effectively worthless. He's been sent on two missions to other countries. So he goes on like uh, diplomatic missions because the king and queen can't be bothered to. Well, she doesn't get to go. She whines about Naomi go. And then men at arms, like literally as he's pulling out, there's exhaust that comes out of the attack track and just like leaves her there in a cloud of exhaust fumes. In my notes, I wrote that Tila is literally left in the dust. Man-at-Arms, He-Man, Stratos, and Lizard-Man, who makes another appearance. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to see Lizard-Man again. And not so soon, anyways. They all set off for the space portals, while Tila kind of secretly looks on. The space portals are in Castle Grayskull, right? Do you think they're using those to transport the Photanium back? Or is it through spaceships? Because I was thinking when I was talking about it before, like they wouldn't be able to fit material stuff through the portals. The portal seems to be like a person height, yellow, sparkling oval. If they pressed the foam into long metal rods and then passed it through that way, perhaps that would work. I guess, but it doesn't seem very logistically effective. It depends on the power source of the portals, because if it's free, I guess this opens up a larger question. Where do Eternians get their energy? But there's probably more than that, because like, they're they have their guns aren't powered by magic. They don't seem to have electricity though. No, they have to. They do. So they have a lot of gadgets. They have hover bikes. They have the attack track. All of those things use some form of energy or magic energy. It's probably some sort of like pseudo science electricity mumbo jumbo. There doesn't seem to be any, like, power plants of, like, combustion, like, gas or coal or whatever. There's probably some sort of latent energy that you can harness from some, like, forgotten energy diamond from some forgotten era. Which is probably what it is. So it's, like, somewhere between magic and science energy source. But I guess what your point we're making is that it probably costs less energy to just hand something through the portal than to transport it through propulsion all the way from the moon. And to escape Eternia's gravity well to get up there. So even if it takes longer or one piece at a time, it's probably more energy efficient to do it that way. So maybe they don't have big frigates going up and down in space. I hope they do, though, because that'd be cooler. The only real spaceship-looking thing that we've seen was Skeletor's Skeleship. The The Collector! So the portals are in some weird techno cave. Yeah, it's super trippy. There's like glowing balls, glowing orange balls. It was really easy for Tila to sneak in there. Like super easy for her. She just walked in. He-Man says, oh, it's this one. And then they walk through a portal sort of off screen. 
Tila wanders through the orange ball chamber and then a portal appears and she walks through it. Human is confronted back on Phantos by the now hag Almora, who he does not recognize right away. No, because she's scary looking. It's not the cougar that he used to know. Speaking of cats, Battle Cat lunges at Almora, but she zaps him into yeah. non-existence. She says something to the effect of like, you know, you're not welcome here. She recognizes him that he's as He-Man still, right? So, uh, the sorceress said some stuff before about how she's not going to recognize or Skeletor would trick her into seeing not seeing He-Man as a friend. But she still recognizes him and just tells him, hey, get the heck off my planet. And he's like, we're here to help Elmora. And she's like, I am Elmora. And he's like, a what? He gives a little speech about how Almora's magic is now evil, but they're going to rescue something, something, a giant plant zap Stratos interrupting He-Man. It's a really strange phrasing that her magic is what's evil now. Like your magic is evil. I don't know if that implies anything other than a weird way to say it. There were a couple of times where it felt like He-Man was addressing the audience directly rather than the person he was actually supposed to be talking to. He's like making these big open declarations about something. and He's announcing it so everyone understands what's happening. I kind of noticed that too. So they fight the big plant creature. It looks like the little Shop of Horrors plant, but on a longer stalk. But it like tractor beams Stratos up into it and then swallows him. And then it teleports the butt away with Stratos in it or something. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. It was as confusing as I sounded confused just now. And as confusing as that statement I just said. He-Man is swiping with his sword at the arms of the plant, which are trying to grab him. And then Tila reveals herself and just zaps it. Yeah, she just shoots it and the plant goes away. And then she gets scolded by Man-at-Arms for disobeying again. And, well, I guess that's the first time. And then He-Man's like, you should have obeyed, Tila, but thank you. And then they share a little look. Tila gives a little smile to herself, or to He-Man. Which, I, I kind of get... All right, so he's like the like a general. She probably outranks her as captain of the guard, but at the same time, it comes off as a very scolding parrot. Like, we're going to talk about this later. So I wonder how much their relationship, which is very much parent-child influences their ability to work together as professionals a lot of why i interpret it that way is because of her reaction to it because she's like oh come on i just wanted to help and then if you had a you outranked somebody so you're subordinate and you said you disobeyed but it's not the time to talk about it we'll talk about this later or something you would say to them and then you continue on with the job so it's not really out of line but it just feels weird because they have a parent-child relationship and she's a grown-ass woman to man-at-arms point this wouldn't be the first time that skeletor has laid a distraction plot and then gone after uh palace eternia exactly that's 80 percent of his plans are a distraction plot and then the, the royals are kidnapped or taken or something however even if that were true the plan would at first succeed and then it would require he-man to intervene and then the day would be saved regardless mm -hmm. so after tila's admonishment he-man lets them know that there is a plan to sneak in via the refinery but that they need to find disguises first that master of disguise he-man was gonna do all right everybody strip down to your underwear and no one will recognize you 
Maybe there is something in Eternia where no one recognizes that He-Man and Prince Adam are the same person. He-Man does not recognize Queen Elmora, even though her face is just a little twisted up. And she's got the old hag eye. Maybe face blindness is a real thing in Eternia. What exactly is face blindness? I only know it from Arrested Development, so it's probably not even this, but at least in that show, it's where you can't differentiate two people by their face. I need to watch Arrested Development again. That's what that means right there. And speaking of television shows, here is your reminder to watch NBC's... <laughs> okay. <laughs> and watch Merlin. <laughs> Say, speaking of magic hags, there's one that He-Man needs to go tame. Actually, at the end of Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's the controversial scene of the she-demon of Phantos. Upon entering the refinery, He-Man mentions that the slave drivers are pushing the workers around with a force field, and he's going to put a stop to it. It looks like established like operations. It appears to be how things are run here, unless Skeletor showed up and brought in some of his personal overseers to come run things. So when they said she said like your people before, they just had they had two dudes right there that looked like old muckety mucks in the opening scenes when Skeletor said, "I'm going to make your people uncomfortable." They had big white beards, eccentric outfits. They looked kind of like court advisor type of folks. And here there's a bunch of like just typical slave driver serfs, like big broody dudes with staffs with weird mace things on them and like people in rags literally standing on a conveyor belt and holding boxes instead of just putting the boxes on the conveyor belt. Yeah. So one theory that I had is that maybe this factory runs itself mostly, but Either something about Skeletor's takeover has messed up the machinery, or perhaps the small number of people who are meant to operate it are on strike because Skeletor zaps Queen Elmora into into obeying him, but presumably he doesn't zap all of the populace. So maybe they realize that their queen has been whatever, ensorcelled, and they refuse to do any work. So now they have to be slave-driven. Option C is this is how he's making the populace uncomfortable, by <laughs> making them hold the boxes on the conveyor belt instead of using the conveyor belt in the way it was meant to. <laughs> so dastardly, but so <laughs> stylish. Uh, that, that one's got to be it. That is just the consummate show skeleton right there. I yeah. think, I, yeah, that's got to be it. So He-Man and friend's disguise is to wear gray capes and in classic he-man fashion as soon as one of the guards zaps he-man for not moving quickly enough he bursts out of his cape and causes a ruckus and now their disguises are ruined the disguises are disappear except for he-man so you don't see anybody take off theirs he-man punches the staff force field thing out and then all of a sudden, the rest of the crew is not wearing theirs. And then He-Man like busts out of his by flexing his muscles. Yeah, it's ridiculous. There's also a new villain guy there. They don't name yet. But he looks like a cross between X-Men's Cable from like Cable and Deadpool. And then the pinhead guy from Hellraiser is my pop culture references to throw on that guy. The one notable feature is that he's got one large arm. 
Yeah, one large metallic arm that like looked like it stretched, but I think it's just a metallic arm. I think it's this poor perspective. So fun fact, in the first shot, when Skeletor and company are sneakily hiding behind the curtain, the metal arm is on this villain's left side. And then for the rest of the episode and on its toys and everything, the arm swaps over to the right side. That is weird. Uh, not that weird. Animation mistakes in He-Man? Oh. What? So the large-armed villain reveals himself. He's standing on a tower overseeing the laborers. He swings down with his large arm, and He-Man winds up to strike him, but is interrupted by the large-armed villain punching the ground, which causes He-Man to stumble backward into a photanium body cell. Which are there on hand, which is why I still think they're using slave labor. Is this when Man-at-Arms uses the boomerang ankle cuffs on Merman? Yes. Because I remember seeing that, and it didn't show up. They just That's how he takes out Merman, is boomerang ankle cuffs. He like, flicks them at him, and they like straighten out and like, weapon, weird weapon number two this episode. So they have photanium body cells. Yeah, just previous to this fight, He-Man is walking, still disguised, and one of the guards says, hey, hurry up or we'll put you in a photanium body cell like these schmucks or whatever. We'll get into later why I think that means they're slave labor. When they talk about it later, they make it more clear that they've already been there. So that's possible. The other option is that it's people protesting being made uncomfortable by and Skeletor turns around and says, I will show you the meaning of being <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So inexplicably, large-armed villain Merman disappear off the scene to go tell Skeletor that they have captured He-Man in one of the bodysuits. Big arm dude seems like an idiot. Cause he just yeah, I fig- there was too many of them. Skeletor, I didn't want to fight him, and I figured that I'd taken out He-Man, and I wanted you to know that. You know. Although Skeletor is pretty into it. He pulls it up on a Skelevision on a staff and says, oh, sweet. Good job, buddy. We cut back over to Man-at-Arms and Tila trying to break He-Man out. They've tried lasers and whatever else, but it has not worked. She's used heat and she's used cold. She's tried chipping away at it. And Man-at-Arms has used every single trick he knows. Tila, with literal tears in her eyes, says... I guess all we can do is carry him back to Eternia. It was delivered with like real sadness. Like the voice actor sold it. Like she was sad. It was the most real emotion I think I've ever gotten from any of the He-Man characters. Apart from Glee from Skeletor. Yeah, yeah. But it was very, it was sincere. It felt real. Brought a tear to my eye, okay? That might have been a bit much, but it was very sad. So what was the trick that they had to use to let to get he-man out he-man just had to flex and break it that was it he let them try every single thing they had to try to break him out of there he let tila think that they were gonna have to bring him home in a casket encased forever and then he's just like all right here's the plan guys uh he-man is kind of a douche skeletor has watched some of this but not long enough to realize that he-man has broken free We cut back over to Skeletor. Almora tries breaking free of the spell, and her device for 
summoning her willpower is to have a vision. She flashes back to some sweaty night where her and He-Man are on top of a tower and she's just like putting him in light bondage so he can break out of it. Over and over, she casts a spell at He-Man. One time chains encircle him, another time it's like wind or something. And yeah, he bursts free. She like claps. She's so happy about it. That's not weird. So when we last saw Prince Adam and Man-at-Arms on Phantos, it was part of the trading, the original trading mission. Presumably, Queen Almora does not know that Prince Adam is He-Man. And so it would have been weird for He-Man to have shown up on that particular trip, which means that at some time previous to all of this, He-Man himself had come to visit Almora for what possible purpose what purpose could it have been an interplanetary booty call we may never know the moral is that when a space queen and the strongest man in the universe love each other very much (laughs) they go to the top of a tower on the moon and practice putting each other in chains with magic yes i also i think that Earlier in the episode, it kind of informs when Prince Adam notices that she doesn't seem like herself. It's because they have a previous relationship. Oh, yeah. He knows what she looks like when she's upset. And more importantly, what she looks like when she is pleased. Oh. Here we finally learn that the large armed villain's name is, surprisingly, Strongarm. Great. Perfect. (laughs) Good name, guys. Using the cherished memory of her time with he-man almora resists skeletor's spell skeletor six strong arm and merman on almora but she uses her wind power to subdue both of them skeletor like magically regains control of her and uses a different spell when she sees he-man instead of just hating him she will see skeletor instead and he is counting on her hatred of Skeletor to then cause Almora to destroy disguised He-Man. Yeah. Uh, Man-at-Arms, meanwhile, rescues Battlecat and Stratos from some overguards. This is pointless because they do not do anything for the rest of the episode. They, yeah, really, other than rescuing them from the cage, just ties up that string and then they're they're gone. They, like, eh, I want to make an important note here in dialogue history and pun history they they don't do the fight scene they just like lizard man and, and man in arms are there and like and like all right you take one i take the other and then they cut they do a little spinny sword and then the guards are dangling from the ceiling and uh, man in arms hits them with uh i hate to leave you guys up in the air but we really have to be going now no thank you i wasn't even impressed by it i wasn't very happy with it it's not even like disappointingly good the puns on he-man and the masters of the universe miss and other times they also miss it's it's more of sometimes they're the best in the world and sometimes they're just like the fourth or fifth best in the world i thought you were gonna go with sometimes they are the most powerful puns in the universe (laughs) see if i had something like that up my sleeve i would have been a writer for he-man and the masters of the universe (laughs) so Tila and He-Man approach Almora, who gives them an excellent cockeyed glare. 
she calls him Skeletor and then attempts to blast him. She doesn't just blast him. She, like, blasts him and gets out her sword and shield to go fight him. He-Man is momentarily stunned, and so Tila grabs her sword and shield and charges to attack as well. And then for reasons I still don't understand exactly, Skeletor decides to join in the fight. Tila, like, tries to convince the queen. She gets through to her a little bit. She tries to convince the queen that, like, it's not Skeletor, it's He-Man. Remember that you're a powerful woman. You have your own magic or something. And it's just something about, like, magic. You have powerful magic. You know that what you see is what the magician wants you to see or something. It, like, starts to get through to her, but she still can't figure out that it's He-Man. And Skeletor's like, all right, I'm going in. Everyone sort of mills around in the background while Skeletor and He-Man fight. Skeletor does say at one point that he's going to team up with Queen Almora to try to kill He-Man because she hates Skeletor He-Man. And I don't know, he believes that he can convince her to join his Skeletor side or something like that. It did not make a lot of sense. Yeah, like he's trying to convince her that he's not Skeletor. That's Skeletor. And the queen's just like over it, sitting on the throne, like can't figure it out. At one point, real Skeletor runs up to her and like crouches over her shoulder like a little gremlin pointing, get him, get him, which was also very weird. (laughs) He-Man tells Almora to remember the spin magic, and this causes Queen Almora to hearken back to their good times. Those summer nights, wella, 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 huh. (laughs) Warm summer nights. Almora wraps both He-Man and Skeletor in chains, saying that only the real He-Man could escape, which he does. Since they know it's or she knows it's He-Man now. He-Man tells Skeletor, you know, release her from his spell or and I'll set you free or I'll never set you free or something. So he does and He-Man lets him out of the chains. He breaks the chains after he breaks the spell. Like and he could have kept him in chains like he has Skeletor captured. And then he does look almost a little surprised when Skeletor promptly disappears. I don't know what he was thinking would happen. He-Man is bound to the hero code of fiction where they are moral to a fault, giving the villain advantage when they didn't have to. Like a deal's a deal kind of thing. He-Man and friends wrap up with Almora in the throne room, and then we get a great scene where Tila is peeling potatoes back at the castle. This is Tila's punishment for disobeying orders, and... Adam makes a joke that everyone is being punished because, ha ha ha, we've all had Tila's potatoes before, and they're bad. Everybody throws back their head, including Tila, in laughter because it's so funny. So I'll caution you that the moral is not about food safety. Okay, thanks for the warning. Okay, so they've been on theme the last couple, so I'm going to stay on theme. I'm going to say, listen to your parents Even if you disagree with it, they often know it's best. That is a good one. It is not the moral of this episode. We cut over to He-Man, who says, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment about safety. When we go to the beach, there are lifeguards there to watch out for our safety. Crossing guards are in the street for the same reason, to protect us. Now, things like that are fine, but we can't count 
on someone always being around to protect us. We should practice thinking of safety all the time. So don't take a chance. And that's true whether you're driving in the street or crossing, whatever. Think safety. <laughs> yes, and then Battle Cat roars right at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Man. It's kind of a paranoid, like, things are always out to get you moral. It really kind of is. Like, you always got to be vigilant, constantly vigilant. You can't count on others to save your ass all the time like Steela did in my ass this episode. Which I guess is very tangentially supported by Tila showing up and blasting that plant with a laser gun. But yeah, don't take any chances. I'm kind of disappointed. Like, I really felt good about it being on theme this week. You know, they've been on theme the last couple of weeks. He-Man is, as we've seen in this episode, a master of subterfuge. So just when you think you've got the moral pattern nailed down, they'll get you with a fast one. So who is Man-at-Arms always making weapons to fight against? Do you think there's someone besides Skeletor? He mentions that when they first are leaving Phantos, that the Fultanium, which, by the way, is an incredibly dumb name for a fantasy super metal, will help protect Eternia. That's the end. Not from anybody, just... I mean, there is Skeletor, so there is reason to protect it. But the question is, are there wars? Are there other, like, nation states that they have to worry about? And when there are other nation states, like, they can't get along with all of them. I wonder if Prince Adam is going on these diplomatic missions because it's like a Cold War situation. We talked about this a little bit with the singer, Solis, in Song of Solis, who has the power to do almost anything with song, and how do you counterbalance that? with he-man and what does that look like and so maybe it's it's more of like a everybody's escalating their weapons and their country's defenses king randor is sending prince adam out to try to keep things from turning hot or make alliances with the primary weapons manufacturers that's why they're on phantos to get better materials for their weapons to make better weapons and better armaments it's just the industrial military complex. Not even Eternia is safe from the grasping at power by corrupt men, King Randor. Rich man war, poor man's fight, Druben. So you think that the the little moon fiefdom is its own kingdom. They call it a kingdom a couple of times, but the only people we see are like the people in the factory who may or may not be slaves. They're definitely slaves for the events of this episode. You think it's like an entire kingdom or is it just like that one factory, like the mining and refinery aspect of it with one big castle and her power comes from having the materials mined on the moon? It's hard to tell because when we first were introduced to Eternia, we had the same conversation about the palace feeling really empty. And I remember how exciting it was to see that poor villager hoeing a field with his solitary cow before Skeletor showed up to turn him to stone in Colossor Awakes. But eventually we did learn that there is some kind of population in Eternia. The same thing kind of happened in Tarin in Song of Solis, where there's this, what looks like a large city, techno spires, very futuristic, but 
the only people we interact with are the prime minister and Celise and lizard man i think so i mean he man the cartoon just does not do a very good job of showing the general populace or there just are not very many people that inhabit these places i think it's the former but they just don't animate it but like in the case of Terran, like it's a huge huge looking city like there's many buildings and then like with eternity you can see the main castle but then like a bunch of fields on the outside of it like in the, the flat valley but like beneath the mountain whatever with this with Phantos, it looks like just a factory in a castle on the moon rocks. They don't zoom out or anything, so all you see is the factory, and all you see is the castle. So I feel like it's just like a little, she's the queen of her castle and her mine, but like other than that, like her kingdom is the moon. Like it can't be, I mean, I guess it could be, we don't know. They're on it without oxygen masks and there's plants and stuff, so I guess there could be other stuff going on there. It doesn't look very fertile for growing things. They have to import all their food, probably. Well, there's plants. I don't know. I don't know how that colony sustains itself beyond using portals to trade fultanium for bread, I guess. I also still think there's a chance that it's slave labor because in the episode when Skeletor is threatening Elmore about something, Skeletor says that He-Man's encased in one of your own fultanium body cells. So this is the thing she employs. That's not a very good look for no. Elmora. Now, I mean, maybe it's something that she employed in during one of He-Man's visits, you know, but I kind of doubt it. It could be a consensual Fultanium body cell relationship. I mean, it could be. Or she's using hard labor to get the Fultanium mines going and running. And even in the most charitable case where... I mean, it's a, you know, it's a city. There are people who are not willing to adapt to the laws of the realm, but they have normal dungeons and being locked in a Fultanium body cell, which apparently cannot be opened, is extremely uncomfortable punishment. Which is why Skeletor likes it so much. But like they're they're in the factory. Those things are in the refinery. They're not like in the dungeons they're like in the refinery and there's like i mean i guess they could have been moved there but they're like in the wall built into the wall which is why i'm still on phantos uses slave labor or at least has very very stringent policies that they enforce on their employees yeah and either way the kingdom of eternia is definitely overlooking some human rights violations because they want those fultanium weapons. Yeah, at the very least. I think interesting about the like that is that it bothered He-Man, right? Like it, He-Man was about to punch a, a slave driver. He was about to punch the overseer. But then Men-at-Arms like stopped him and said, like, now's not the time. So, I mean, it could be because he didn't want to blow their cover or because he didn't want to cause a political incident by breaking out the slaves of the thing. I'm coming to believe the latter. We do have a new segment today. We have a new segment? Yeah, listener mail. Oh, we have a listener mail? Yeah, two, actually. Oh, we have two listener mails? That's amazing. So one comes from avid fan Jefferson, who mentions that in our earlier episodes, we are talking about how sparse the Kingdom of Eternia is. And it remains pretty sparse. We've been introduced to a few more folks, but not a ton of people. And so how 
grand is it really that He-Man calls himself the most powerful man in the universe? He's really like the most, the strongest man of, you know, the 20 friends of Eternia, something like that. <laughs> we have to have seen at least 60 people. I don't know. What would it put the ballpark out of how many individual people we've seen? There's like a couple dozen villagers in the Curse of Wood, the Spellstone, right? There's five or six bad guys, like seven or eight good guys we've seen. Yeah, there's maybe 10 people that we see on the moving walkway things this episode in the factory. The flame tribes of the region of flame, because they're people too. They most certainly are. It's fewer than 100 people. Yeah, definitely. So it's not very impressive yet. But I mean, the way I've always personally interpreted it is that he's like, by definition, the most powerful man in the universe. That's like how his power works. It's my own private interpretation. So like if Superman were to show up in man's universe, He-Man, by definition, would be stronger than him. Does He-Man dynamically become stronger than the next strongest thing that exists? And then once that thing is obliterated by punching or rock throwing, does He-Man's own power decrease now to be only stronger than the now the third strongest thing, now the second strongest thing? I think so, because he has a sense of fairness. He only has to be just the strongest, not like incredibly stronger than everything else. So He-Man's power level shot way up when in the Tar Pits, creatures from the Tar Pits. Mm, when the Dracodon showed up? The Dracodon showed up and was extremely powerful. I think under this definition, it's still not very impressive because there's only 100 people. And the Dracodon's gone now, so he's not that powerful. So thank you, Jefferson, for that provocative listener mail. We got one yeah, other. that's awesome. Okay. Uh, this one comes from uh, another lifelong fan, Brendan, who wrote two comments, actually. Uh, one, to let us know that the prime minister from the Song of Solace, as a prime minister you are still part of the pre-democracy, like, dictatorship, feudal government situation. That was a position that has existed before elected officials. Well, it's, it's elected now, right? Or is he saying it was, it was appointed before there was elected prime ministers? Let me return to the actual mail so that I cannot misrepresent Brendan's words. I would bow to Brendan's superior knowledge. But actually, I think he's right. Like, it must have been appointed... Be the prime minister would be an appointed position by a king or queen in a feudal sense. Yeah. So uh, Brendan writes, by the way, prime ministers historically were part of monarchical government structures that rule predates democracy. But they're elected nowadays. Uh, I guess. And in this instance, this would probably be pre-democracy. We haven't seen anything to indicate that there's any sort of representative uh, governments at all anywhere. Yeah. The villagers who are literally scratching their lives in the dirt at the foot of Palace Eternia and all of its techno wonders did not vote King Randor into power. No. They are not not uh, at all voting to increase Man at Arms budget for rocketry when their turnip field is uh, facing a drought. Throw their last cow and meanwhile Orko's making giant cakes at parties. Brendan also notes a second request for a theme song. Uh, so we have to do the da 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 da. Yeah, it's either that or he suggested the wailing from the singer in Song of Solace, which would also be pretty funny. That works too. Awesome. Always good to get listener mail. 
Yeah, so please call me on my telephone if you're one of the people <laughs> who has my number. Write us an email, hello at attorneyareview.com or friend me on Facebook and get it to me that way. You respond to anybody on Facebook? I guess you do go on Facebook more than I do. Maybe you'll be responsible for running our uh, Twitter account once we get really big, Ben. I have not gone on Facebook in like a year. <laughs> uh, but if that's what we have to do, I'm willing to take on that responsibility at some point in the distant future. <laughs> Any other final thoughts to impart to our listeners? No. I feel like it's sort of weird to put it in here, but I had a Skeletor quote of the day. Another section. Yeah, I'm into it. When they're fighting at the end of the episode and uh, Elmora is still convinced that He-Man is Skeletor or, and Skeletor is there fighting other Skeletor and she's still confused. He-Man tries, he like beseeches Skeletor to like, you know, break the spell. Skeletor, and Skeletor is, what? And spoil out my fun? <laughs> and then so something about, it's time to have more fun or something. I don't know the second part wasn't as good. That was the good quote. That was the the show skeleton coming out great quote great delivery by you ben and a great new segment that we will definitely incorporate into future episodes <laughs> all right thank you for joining us we'll see you next time on the attorney review <laughs>